takes a team to succeed. And if we really want to get after the, the complex challenges uh, that affect strategic competition, we need help. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Tinker Talks. Tinker Talks is your audio format podcast that talks about all the happenings behind the fence line of Tinker Air Force Base. I'm your host, Mark Hybers, and today we are joined by some special guests, uh, one who hasn't been with us for a while and a couple that have never been with us, so we're pretty excited about this conversation. Um, we're going to be talking about people and jobs, and that's very important. Uh, so with us today is, of course, the, the ALC commander, that's Major General Jeff King, uh, the vice director is Mr. Wade Laughlin, and our union president, Mr. Jeremy Ross. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I guess it's actually afternoon, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, just before we get started, I just do need to throw in the disclaimer that uh, Mr. Mr. Ross being here uh, as a union representative is not us endorsing the union uh, or asking people to join, but uh, the union's a very important partner as you'll hear here pretty shortly. So we want to get them involved in this conversation. So uh, if you could, General King, maybe you could start off. We're going to ask everybody to just kind of introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of background. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Major General Jeff King, uh, Oklahoma City Air Logistics Complex Commander. Been here almost three years and uh, getting ready to uh, reluctantly wrap up uh, this, this tour with this great team and move on to whatever is next. Been a good tour. Well, Sir, Mr. Laughlin? Um, I'm Wade Laughlin. Uh, I'm the vice director. I've uh, been in position, this position for approximately hmm, 13 months. Uh, prior to that, I've been in the complex for the last 20 plus years as the director of financial management. So I've uh, been here for quite a while, just in a different capacity, and now have stepped up to assume a new role. Rah. Awesome. And Mr. Ross? Yes, sir. Uh, I've been out here since 2010. Um, I'm a sheet metal mechanic in the 564th, um, and in uh, 2019, in October, I became the union president and been union president a little over three and a half years. How's that? A pretty easy gig? Uh, it, it, it can be. It can have its uh, days. Right. Yep. Good. Good. Well, yep. we're happy to have you all. And uh, Mr. Laughlin, I know you had just kind of come on, but you bring quite a wealth of knowledge to the to the team here. The financial management surely this has got to be more fun than financial management uh, <laughs> a little more challenging on a day-to-day -day basis broader scope but uh, uh enjoyed my time there and uh enjoying my time in the new in the new role awesome well we're, we're appreciative to have you all here and so general king we'll kind of start with you um kind of if you could give us a a broader um briefing about how jobs and hiring is going in the complex i know we're always looking but how is it going currently yeah, so uh, as, as most folks probably already know, uh, Oklahoma City Air Logistics Complex, Tinker Air Force Base in general, uh, is the largest single-site employer. And, uh, and so I can say, I won't speak for the installation, but for the complex, uh, we hire about 100 people a month, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Sometimes we need sheet metal mechanics. Sometimes we need um, non-destructive inspection techs or engine techs. Um, it, it kind of varies, uh, but we always need engineers, right? That's one of the things that we found is uh, we have an insatiable demand for engineers, and we actually hire more uh, than the, the great state of Oklahoma produces every year. Uh, so we, we work with those academic institutions and those with the states around us to try and bring engineers in uh, to fortify what we do. But uh, from the artisan level to um, those who are on supporting staffs and FM and, and personnel and 
and IG and QA and so many others um, generally hire about 100 a month. And uh, that's, that's going really well for us. Things kind of ebb and flow uh, with workload projections. We try and do a projection two years out, then a year out, and then the reality of uh, funding and material availability kind of kicks in. Right. So sometimes we find ourselves shooting a little behind the deck and we got to play catch up. <laughs> and sometimes we uh, find ourselves a, a little over, which we're, we're frankly okay with because that allows us to better manage attrition as folks retire or seek jobs elsewhere. Um, by and large, going really well. We have a fantastic team um, in our OB office um, here at the complex, all the way down to the unit OBs, okay. supported by the installation and AFSCDP. So we're working on reducing hiring timelines, uh, which is really good, um, and uh, getting the right people in the right job. I, I will take a second and say two things are very important. Um, we understand there's been a lot of longstanding concerns here, as well as every other organization with a large number of civilians, uh, that there can be challenges with, you know, if perception, if not reality, of nepotism and cronyism. And, right. and we've worked real hard over the last three years to make some institutional changes. And I'd say further than that, but I can't speak for the time before I was here. Um, in terms of overhauling our hiring processes <clears throat> to make sure that we are getting the most qualified candidate. That's not to say that family and friends aren't welcome here. They absolutely are. In fact, that's one of the, you know, one of our strengths is when we have multiple generations, there's a commitment to the mission, right? right. But uh, folks will, you know, our, our goal is that folks aren't hired on familiarity. Uh, they're hired on um, th their skills and what they bring to the fight. And, and even if they're coming in fresh off the streets with no aircraft maintenance experience, I've talked to folks that were, you know, stalkers at, uh, you know, stock, stocking at a company downtown or serving at a company, and they come in and we have exceptional training programs. Mm -hmm. And for those who want to get a little experience coming in, they can go to any one of our great career techs um, and get either certifications or some experience that, that gives them a little bit of a leg up. Um, so getting after those institutional hiring processes has been very important to make sure uh, that, that we're hiring the right people for the right job for the right reasons. The other thing I'll, I'll quickly mention, then we'll move on, is we're spending a lot of time and effort on formalizing our succession planning, meaning the first thing we do is identify qualifications for a job. Mm -hmm. Then we go out and work to develop a robust candidate pool. And uh, we found that if we equally develop people and we're putting as much investment in everybody, we're developing a robust pool. Then we get into our hiring process. So if you've set uh, specific qualifications, you've developed people well, You've got a lot, of, a lot of great choices for when we, we panel and board for those first, second, third supervi first, second, third line supervisors, squadron directors, group directors, et cetera. So, again, made a lot of uh, what I call institutional changes to try and close some cultural gaps right. uh, in the complex and make sure we're, we're just getting the highest quality personnel. Um, yeah, that, that's it, but it's an important conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll add to that a little bit as well, too. Uh, one of the biggest pieces of it that, that we believe to um, have, have, have to, has to, hap has to happen is, is we have to provide transparency to our workforce. Uh, we have to provide transparency to them. We have to provide transp transparency to outside <clears throat> workforce as well, too, of, of what we want in. So as General King mentioned, the uh, succession plan is one way of doing that because it identifies what those requirements, those criteria of what we're looking for in individuals when they come in the door to go do. But then the second piece of that, as he mentioned, is, is the hiring piece of that. And for them to understand what that hiring piece looks like, how we go about doing that, how to do that, 
And so if they can understand that, it, it lowers that bar for them to think that there's this behind-the-door deal going on of something and how people come on board and how they do. And once they realize that there is actually a structured process put in place with a lot of eyes put on it and, and a lot of fingers uh, in the pie to make sure that we're uh, having an equal playing field with those individuals through the hiring process, it, it, it aids in that process. So um, that that's part of the process as well, too, is, is to allow that. And uh, uh, I know I think part of the part of the thing we're going to do at the end of this that you're going to attach to uh, this podcast or something like that is is those actual uh, hiring spots that they can go sure. to and stuff yeah. like that where, where they can go do that and learn a little bit more. So I just wanted to add that on there because as as the general mentioned, perception is reality for people, and if they think they you know, and it's validated by. Uh, nothing more than than words um, by their peers out there. Then that's their that's their truth. But uh, if we can get that out there and show people that we are actually transparent in the way we go about hiring and bringing people on, then it helps with that cronyism, nepotism, and uh, uh, type of mindset that's going on out there. Well, it's good that came up, you know, real early in the conversation because it's important for people to know and understand that that there's no utopian society, but you know the fact of the matter is that you, we're doing the best that we can and the process put in place is is actually quite good i mean it's it's not really all that people based i mean there's there's quadrant boxes and i think each unit may have a little different way of hiring but you know it's very much based on skills and and yeah, what well, you've let, done let and, me just kind of you know correct the record there that's the benefit is each unit doesn't do their hiring we have a centralized <clears throat> process now right um, that, that that takes you know individual hands out of it to a degree right, right? Um, at the end of the day supervisors always uh, get a choice but the number of the, the records that they're choosing from um, have been screened and aligned to make sure that they get uh, a high quality candidate uh, you know a pool of high quality candidates right. instead of just being able to be handed a resume by by someone they know and, and process that so that goes very well two quick things I'd like to add and then we'll move on one before we make any changes to our hiring or promotion processes we always lash up with AFGE. Absolutely. Yep. While, while it may may or may not be a, a you know a, a master uh, a labor agreement uh, kind of a design thing, that's a courtesy we do because we found that the closer tight the the more tightly wrapped we are with AFGE in in these types of things, the more successful they are. And by the way, uh, Mr. Ross and his team always bring in constructive criticism uh, to really improve that process. And, well, and uh, it helps. It, it also helps, sir, too, when we articulate it when when folks come to and, and and talk to the union, mm -hmm. we are able to articulate, uh, you know, sometimes at a at a different level to them, right? Um, and that we're we were at the table when when we we're negotiating these processes, right? So, well, and the, the last thing I'll say, and thanks, Mr. Ross, that's an important point, right? Um, that the other thing is in 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 that you know bottom slide you're going to put in the end of the the. Uh, the podcast is we're trying to de demystify the way you onboard, <laughs> right? Because when we go out and I read the Facebook posts of, in responses, um, people say, hey, I've had my resume out there for years, no callback. And well, it turns out they probably submitted to USA Jobs. Right. And, you know, for the last several years, three, four, five years now, we've, we've had, uh, um, you know, the, the DHA hiring process mm -hmm. that allows us to, to go faster. Um, and, and initially when that was brought on and we had a great hiring need, we went real fast and we realized we, we, 
probably needed to improve that process. And that's what the last three years we're doing. Now, if you're going for a supervisory position, it's through another animal in some <laughs> positions or through, through USA Jobs. So what we're going to do is work with you all to publicize out there. Depending on the job you're looking for, this is the route you go. If you're looking to become one of our industrial artisans, um, you know, then, then they, they send their resume to our uh, business operations area, and then that's when the, that kicks off the process. So right. we'll, help, we'll help work to demystify that. Good. And we actually, we did build a website specifically tailored to jobs uh, that came about from the ALC, from right. meetings that we've had with your folks in OB. Um, and a lot of it talks about not going through USA Jobs, but, mm. you know, and there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, if, if you do your diligence and stay on top of it, I mean, it, it may take you a while, but it's an incredible place to work. So Yeah, it is. And, and the important thing to note is, is um, you know, if you don't hear something back in six months, resubmit. That's right. kind of the timeline is resubmit because we'll, in some cases, we may have 300 people lining up to come be sheet metal uh, technicians. And we, over a, you know, two, three month period, maybe we only hire 75 or 100 because we're really focusing on jet engine mechs or non-destructive inspection or electricians, right? So it just kind of depends. But after six months, hit that reset button, send your resume back in, <laughs> and then uh, and, and that way you, you can be sure that you're still being considered. Right. Yes, and you sir. always want to make sure it's, that your resume is updated <laughs> with the most current information. Right. And you see that, you know, if you've got a new certification or, or won an award somewhere, that's sure. pretty important because if you're working on a points system to get hired, then all of those things really matter. Any and all achievements you can add to it makes it look better. Right. Great point. And I, I know we, we hadn't really discussed this, but you brought this up, and I wondered how difficult is it in an organization that's over 10,000 people to forecast two years out how you're going to have to hire? Is that a... I'd, I'd argue we're, we're actually pretty good at that. And all, you know, Mr. Laughlin's been here a lot longer than me as well as Jeremy from different aspects. But when we go out to plan workload, um, we, we, you know, we script everything down, right? This part of the art of the possible is gating and scripting. And so when we know basically, you know, whip, tat, and output, it's a function called uh -huh. Little's Law, right? Uh -huh. When you know how much your output is going to be required, you know how much you're going to have work in process, you know how fast it needs to move. So we apply that application, the scripting of work, to determine how many of each technician we need and we forecast that. The challenge is we forecast that out in a two-year time. We reassess it right before we start the production year mm -hmm. and then reality kicks in and that's material shortfalls, uh, funding may not have panned out as we needed or maybe things in those two years, some things broke more or less than expected and when we actually go to produce what the supply chain asks us to produce, doesn't exactly look like we thought it would look like. It turns out life moves on in two years, right, right inside the planning cycle. So um, it is constantly, It's if you've ever seen someone fly a helicopter, all hands and feet are being used at once, right? They got the <laughs> stick, the collective, and the rudder pedals. Uh -huh. um, you know, or in a ship, you're tacking sails and driving the rudder. It, it's, it's the same thing here where it constantly takes attention to get a bead on where are we at? What we can we produce? Oh, this wasn't material supportable last quarter, but guess what? The contractors came through, the, and, and now the material is coming in. Now we need to adjust. You know what we're doing. That that sometimes requires different people uh, than we than we have. So it could drive some uh, rapid training. It could drive some overtime until we can hire to meet the need. Mm -hmm. um, those types of things. So. When your organization, sir, is really setting the bar for the AOP and uh, the rest of us, I know as we're doing it in our office too, but we're all really struggling to, we're running to stand still basically, but uh, 
it's good. I mean, it's good to see the process works in more than just turning out a, a an aircraft from a certain amount of days to a certain amount of days. Well, as they say on a TV show, this is the way. <laughs> this right? is a- the way. AOP, this is the way. That's so, right. And, and out here, uh, since I've, ever since I became president, all of my stewards have attended AOP 101 training. Um, all of my stewards go through it. So so we can see it, see the whole process work from our side of the, uh, of the fence. Right. And it, it's really helped them a lot, a lot. Yeah, making it really a part of your DNA is is the key to this. Uh, I've been around long enough here that it's been called AOP, it's been called lean, it's been called transformation, it's been called you know continuous process improvement. Yeah, I mean, you you, yeah. you you name it, we've we've been through it. and It's been called that. So, uh, but let me tell you, at the beginning of it, it was very difficult uh, to to get people energized to want to change the process of. Of and buy-in uh, from the bottom level all the way up to want to do that. But I believe now, for sure, in the production environments, we really have that bought-in mentality for AOP because they can see the results associated with it. They can see the benefits of it. But we're instituting that across the board in the administrative areas uh, as well. So um, we're, we believe it's part of our DNA. It, it, it is who we are. Uh, it is what we expect on a day-to-day basis from our people to understand that. So. Well, when, when it was initially brought on, I think there was a concern that, wow, if we get more efficient, we won't need people. We're going to lay people off. That was the thought. And, yeah, <laughs> and that and that is truly not the case. What we want to do is use art of the possible to make sure our artisans have the time, training, tools, tech data, and number of technicians needed to do the job in hand. And if we can free people up, that allows us to go out and apply them to new workloads. So Absolutely. I think if you look back over the history of the complex, We've only gotten bigger, uh, mm-hmm. you know, since we put in AOP because the workloads come in because we've demonstrated that we can take on more workload and Absolutely. do it safely. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and as we bring in advanced technologies uh, that may free some manpower for some tedious tasks, whether it's, uh, you know, drilling out rivets or, or masking uh, parts to be uh, plated or whatever, what we do is free those artisans up to do something only human beings can do. Right. So the intent is never uh, to, to, you know, cap our hiring or anything else. It's to bring on more workload in the organic industrial base because at the end of the day, the the R3 depots, the organic industrial base, is the insulation policy against an inflexible uh, or, or not entirely responsive commercial industrial base. Right. So at the end of the day, it's about providing our warfighters what they need. And if we can't get it quickly from the commercial side, we gotta produce it here. And, and that's what people do with the facility and machines that we have. So we absolutely wanna have the right technicians uh, to meet the need, especially today as we talk about returning to major power competition mm-hmm. uh, and, and whatnot. I mean, we're, we're ever closer to um, what we felt here during World War II, right. potentially a two-theater war, right? So we gotta be on point. AOP, advanced technology, all helps that because it allows us to get the best out of our people. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I know, we're talking about we talked a little bit about stem and i mean stem is obviously it's a huge topic everywhere you go these days but is that the most needed job in demand or where do the artisans come into to play on all that well so i i'll tell you, you know the state of oklahoma is is trying hard to make aerospace uh the, the number one industry in oklahoma is is energy um and and they're they're trying to surpass it with aerospace so not only oklahoma but uh, the alc here um you know, other, I'd say, um, folks that provide MRO activities maybe up the road and all these pockets of uh, industry that, that Oklahoma's bringing in requires technicians, 
professionals, uh, other you know professionals in the the you know whether it's a financial management or person, human resource or whatever, and definitely engineers, right? right. Um, but everything in aerospace is technology based, and so we're working quite a bit with. Um, the local, the Garrity chapter, the Air Force Association, our university partnerships with uh, OU and OSU and others uh, to get out and do STEM education um, in middle and high school to, to make folks better prepared to come do this job. So do you require uh, completing calculus to come be a CNC tech here? No, you don't. We have great training programs. Right. However, really <clears throat> understanding and, and appreciating um, the, the, the various aspects of STEM makes it a much easier transition. And then by advancing STEM education, maybe we can get more in, people interested in, um, you know, we've got uh, what we may call our blue collar and our white collar workforce. Right in the middle squarely, we have what we call our new, new collar workforce. Um, and those are the folks that uh, serve as a blend between the artisans and the engineers uh, to get out solving problems and employing new technology. Um, and, and that definitely requires a STEM background right. uh, as, you're, as you're coming in there. So yes, it, my perspective, STEM's very incredibly important to everything we do in the aerospace industry, um, most every job we've got. Right, and Mr. Loughlin, go ahead, sir. No, I, I, I was just gonna add to that. Uh, as far as STEM is concerned, it's, it's very important um, the stigmas associated with working for the Air Force as a civilian. Um, a lot of people have the mentality of, well, you got a certain requirement, the same requirement as uh, General King wearing a blue suit and being able to go out and fight. I mean, there, there's, there's just a misconception. So the earlier that we can reach these kids in the STEM environment, in the junior high, in the high school time frame, get them interested, one, in STEM, get them interested in knowing that, hey, we have something right here in your backyard mm -hmm. that provides and scratches that itch for you to be able to go do. And, oh, by the way, that doesn't mean you have to go – you have to go and, and move every two or three years, or you have to go and do anything different. We've got that, that ability right here and draw that interest in our own backyard uh, is paramount. So starting that early and providing that transparency, once again, you hear that word from me again, uh, of going out into the community to be able to do that. And then our, our partnerships that we actually have with the local Votex, you've heard that several times already in here, mm -hmm. to get those people on board to come do that. And then we also have now educational partnerships with many uh, universities in the state of Oklahoma uh, where we are honing in on that STEM relationship with them uh, on differing things. And so uh, we're, we're going all the way across the board. Uh, we're starting at young. We're going all the way through to the college level, and we're wanting to bring those people in and have a relationship with Tinker Air Force Base all along the way. And not just them but the community as well, too, to understand what, what a treasured resource they have right here in Tinker Air Force Base right. so that uh, we don't have that problem with uh, getting those people in the future and they understand what a vital role they can fill right here in Oklahoma City well, area. It starts, starts with building relationship and partnerships. You know, when that... We've seen a pretty big uptick in partnerships uh, over the last probably – five to ten years or so i mean real big in the last probably since you've been here general king I've, I've, we've yeah, seen think, a lot i think of uh, this team um with uh, my predecessor uh, general hills kind of he is a huge collaborator i've followed him into multiple assignments so it was no surprise to me that he was expanding out in that area it just it goes down to that old adage um any of us can fail all by ourselves mm -hmm. but it takes a team to succeed mm -hmm. and if we really want to get after the the complex challenges uh, that affect strategic competition, we need help. 
So we're working with universities, uh, formerly known as Votex, now Career Tex, right. um, to, to be able to shape their curricula and, and meet our needs, um, as well as other governmental agencies, right? Um, like Oak Ridge National Lab and, and, uh, and various others, to be able to help us solve these very complex problems. Our partnerships are essential, uh, but tying back on the STEM piece a little bit, and, and as Mr. Ross and Mr. Laughlin said, um, you know, kind of working back to the school level, we've actually gone so far as been engaging with the state leadership to say, hey, look, what we'd really like to see you do is implement um, a couple of tracks in, in high school. I mean, one, the schools here only require three years of math and science, mm -hmm. right, as opposed to four years like other schools. Now, that may not be everybody's bag. That's okay. Right. Um, but having to give up a period for a sport, vice have it for academics, it, it's kind of, okay, we're bringing all this aerospace industry. The goal is to raise them here, educate them here, employ them here, and retain them here. Yeah. Well, we got to make sure they have the right building blocks. So, um, you know, is it possible to have a couple of tracks, like a STEM track that requires four years of math and four years of, of science? Um, maybe do we recapture that, that seventh period that we're a sport and, and use that for academics. Likewise, do you have a career track where maybe you work with Rose State College? Do you work with the career techs to go out and get either certifications or build skills from uh, accounting to electrician to bend in metal to working on stuff, architecture? Right. doesn't matter. Every student that leaves high school ought to be prepared to go do something. Right. Um, and, and so we're engaging with the state on that vision. And we understand that the, not only are they are ahead of us, so we're providing supporting fires, but that's beginning to gain ground. So we'll see what the state legislature decides to do. But I think we're setting the conditions for future success in Oklahoma, primarily on Tinker and in Oklahoma City uh, down the road to be able to increase our candidate pool for employment. Well, I think that's that's great that you say that. And, and for you, that's important that somebody in your position is so engaged in something like that because – this is likely to happen long, long after you're out of here. And, oh, it's a relay, uh, maybe for not, sure. sure. Yeah, and, and it's not just me. We've got uh, our fantastic uh, installation team in the Sarah Base Wing, who are the primary, uh, is the installation command team, the primary agents for interacting with the community. We're fortunate to have the Air, uh, the Air Force Sustainment Center headquarters here. Mm -hmm. So we have a three-star and his excellent team, Lieutenant General Hawkins, very uh, engaged and engaging um, out not only talking with uh, state leadership and community leadership, but also our federal legislators um, and folks in D.C. who help get us what we need to set the conditions for success. So really, it's a team of teams effort in building those partnerships. Right. Great vision. That, that's what it takes to be successful for our future generations. And we're talking about people and Mr. Ross, this may lean into your area a little bit, but I mean, there's a lot going on out here. We've, I mean, we just talk about the, the, the desire and the need to hire so many positions, but there truly is a lot of work going on in here, and there's a lot to do, which could bring on a lot of stress for some people. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. What kind of programs do you guys have, and, and especially even the union? I know the union's involved a lot in trying to help mitigate stress so, and things. So for, we're involved in a lot of different programs. Um, partners, uh, we're partners with DEIA, um, mm -hmm. with the OCALC and the Air Base Wing um, with uh, the DEIA programs, the VPP programs. We're part of transformation. Um, we are, um, we, we, there's just DE, DEIA is a really, um, it's a new program that's taken off and, and we're starting to see a lot of really good results from it. Um, it it's, it's, it's really coming a long ways in a short period of time. 
Right. And that's, uh, I think you talk about how involved you guys are, and I think we'd had a conversation before about um, how beneficial Tinker is, and especially the complex, because the complex is by far the largest wing here. It's the largest organization. Um, but it's really, it's important that the union is so involved and so in favor of working so closely with General King and, and all the Absolutely. units here on the base. So we have, um, so we out here at Tinker, um, we represent not only the OCALC, but we've got the CDCs, we've got AFES, we've got NAF, we've got DLA, we've got DISA. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we've got a lot of folks. So we're, we, we have everybody out here but the fire department. Really, <laughs> um, the fire department is covered under their own union, IAFF. But um, so we cover pretty much gate to gate, um, and so we we have to be there. We have to have somebody. We have close to seventy-two stewards out wow. here on the floor, always walking the floor between days, graves, and swings. Right. Um, so we uh, perceptions everything, mm-hmm. and there's times that the perception on the floor may not be what what is actually being perceived from the top so sometimes uh it's easier for us to bring it to you know when we hear what's what's being said on the floor we can say now this is actually what's what they're hearing even though this is what you're saying Mm -hmm. this is what they're hearing so we can always come back to the table and you know regroup and and come come up with a better plan which works 95 percent of the time i'll I'll double down on that i mean uh Having AFGE as partners um, it has been exceptionally helpful. When, when we went through COVID, um, the, the the couple of years, uh, the, the policy that came down, um, sometimes we would no sooner figure out how to apply it to our organization, a new policy would come down, right? <laughs> right? And so as we went to read and interpret that, re-engage with higher headquarters to try and get relief uh, for our workforce. I mean, one example originally came down and said, hey, everyone will test every 72 hours. Like, well, well, that doesn't work. We work three shifts. We work weekends. Not a great battle rhythm. Right. And by the way, <clears throat> so few instances of uh, people contracting COVID at work due to our mask separation and cleaning policies, you know, not sure we even really need it, right? So we, we tried real hard to, to get out of testing altogether, but um, the law is a law. So we went after We were successful in uh, expanding that to once a week. And that was mainly from employee feedback to AFG FGE coming to us, and then we armed up and went went to do uh, I say do battle, but coordinate, collaborate with higher headquarters, um, and try and get a little bit of relief. But from COVID to VPP to you name it, um, AFGE has has been exceptionally important. And and Mr. Ross is right. You know we, we're up here and we spend hours and days working on some of the toughest issues. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of as we say a lot of a lot of sausage making, right? Sure. Um, and and it's really tough to to get that down to. The lowest level when you've got 10,500 people working, right? So AFGE and, and being kind of all over and everywhere, not only in the, the highest level meetings, uh, helping us to make decisions, devise policies, set conditions, but then being able to go back and within the AFGE structure and get out to folks individually on the floor and help spread the word uh, has been very helpful in, in us getting through things like COVID, you know, production changes. Um, any anything that kind of comes in or comes down. So workload changes. Workload changes. Yeah. I mean, very very uh, thankful uh, for such an incredible uh, relationship with AFGE. Now that being said, it's it's uh, it's not all uh, rainbows and unicorns. Occasionally, I'll get a call from <laughs> Mr. Ross at nine o'clock at night. 
hey, you know, there's a problem here. We got to get after, right? And uh, <clears throat> and we talk on the weekends. Time comes, and and by the way, it's not just me. Most of the work between AFGE and the complex, Mr. Laughlin, the DS, and, and all of our many professionals interacting directly with our group commanders and group group directors, squadron directors. Right. Um, most of that tough work gets done well below uh, the front office here. So yeah, we have a a really good relationship with with. Mm, a lot of the folks out here that's it's easier to get things handled and done at the lowest level you know and, and at mm-hmm. the quick at the quickest possible right way when you're ultimately at the end of the day it still affects the mission right so and if we don't um you know we're here to work and we're here to make sure that we we uh send out safe aircraft to our brothers and sisters out there so at the end of the day we have to produce aircraft well, they absolutely depend on that, absolutely. that safety. And you, you guys are pretty heavily involved with VV, VPP and, oh, and yeah. safety. Equal partners. Right. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I wanted I wanted to hit on because you, you talked about in your, your original question to uh, Jeremy was about stress on the workforce. Right. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's undoubtedly stress on the workforce, all kinds of differing stress. Mm-hmm. Um, at all levels. At all levels. <laughs> yeah. And, and so – I think of three things that just pop into my mind that is critical, the relationship that we share with the union and, and that we couldn't do without their partnership and their um, uh, their help to do. Uh, one of the programs is VPP, of what you were just talking about. And we've been uh, unparalleled in our success associated with VPP because uh, safety is, is important, but buy-in is unbelievably important at the lowest level to be able to be safe. Having your employees design and come up with differing viewpoints on how do we do safety and what makes it more safe for them to come to work is, is, is complete uh, uh, buy-in. Uh, and so it's better than dictating what you're going to go do because then you got buy-in from them to be able to do. We, the success associated with that is completely because of the relationship we share with the union. So VPP and safety is, is, is one of the things that come to my mind. The other thing that comes to my mind is the uh, DEIA program that we've now instituted, the diversity, the equity, and inclusion thing. Jeremy sits right beside us uh, and, and is a partner, equal partner, associated with what we're doing with trying to help with our government change uh, coordinators that we have out there in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have those individuals that are out there that help uh, with a different kind of stress uh, that, that are that are hitting hitting those people and, uh, and and allowing them to be counselors of of a, of a sort to be able to lead them in the directions where the experts are actually at. Then we also, the third thing that comes to my mind um, that we actually have as well, too, is we have the uh, uh, CRCs, uh, the Community yes. Resource Coordinators, uh, that are that are out up there as well, too. Uh, while they're not uh, actual, actual um, trained and uh, certified counselors as well, too, they help from a differing level uh, mm-hmm. of what's available to them out in the workforce to be able to, to go and do. Jeremy is sits right beside us as well on on, on that as well too. Uh, to me, it's a triad. They they all inter interrelate uh, together because it takes 
all of us to be able to make those succeed to help with the stress and the welfare and the uh, helping of our individuals that are out on the shop floor. Right. So uh, um, anyway, we have we have all of those those they're three, and there and there are others uh, right. that are well too. Those are just three that pop into my right. mind that are critical. They're, they're pieces of the puzzle, right? Yeah, that that we couldn't do without our our right. relationship with the. So union. like this year, we we just re recertified three of our different uh, groups. Mm -hmm. Got our VPP recert and. We, we got recognized at a high level this year um, from um, uh, the OSHA side, uh, right. the directors of OSHA from D.C., and, and even, I believe it was the uh, um, someone from the DOD uh, had sent something down um, recognizing us. Uh, and he, he, he had mentioned in his, in his email or letter that he had mailed us um, about the relationship and the partnership is what makes this program happen right and it is i mean that's what if you don't have a relationship you're not going to be able to 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 have a safe atmosphere right and this is uh the crcs and and those are those are fairly new Absolutely. programs yeah. so so and to get after the the kind of the the triad that uh mr laughlin talked about um and and this is kind of how we're looking at it right now the union and that representation is one, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we allocate a certain amount of overhead for taking care of people and getting after production that way. The other was our group change teams associated with our DEI program um, is another. And, and while it's focused on uh, more solely on DEIA, um, <clears throat> it allows us to, folks, as they get out and make contact, they find folks that have um, issues, concerns, challenges across the spectrum, Vectrum to write resources. A new program directed by AFMC is the uh, Community Support uh, Coordinators, mm -hmm. and with them we have attached uh, the Personnel Support Volunteers, right? And, and so those are the folks with the broad spectrum that are get out and kind of the first line non-supervisory, hey, how's it going? What's going on with you? Uh, you know, where are your stressors? You know, whether it's, you know, having some, some marital challenges, which happens with us all, right. um, financial challenges, maybe it's, EO related or, or DEI related, mm -hmm. those personnel um, uh, support volunteers have a Rolodex of resources to vector our people out. So really we're hitting at it three different ways here, um, but, but two of them, really all three of them, require volunteers. Whether you volunteer to be a union steward uh, along the way, or you're uh, a member of one of the DEI group change teams, or a personnel support volunteer, it, it is about um, airmen, big A, Right. You know, civilian airmen helping each other and, and carving. And what we've made in the decision of the complex is it is worth um, allocating some non-production time for our people who want to help our people to go awesome. out and do this. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's all about reducing those stressors in life. And we've all got them. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it makes money. Uh, it, and it produces the mission, right. the aircraft. Yeah. It, yeah. As long if you've got happy employees and employ the morale's up, mm -hmm. you they want to be here. They want to come to work. They want to be able to, you know, um, they feel like they've got something when they watch that airplane take off that flight line. Right. They they know they touched that airplane somewhere. You know, they mm -hmm. they they've had their hands on that plane. And I think that one, and none of us check our problems at the gate, like our baggage when we <laughs> yeah, hit the airport. Right, right? Exactly. We don't check our problems at the gate. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, our problems start when they hit the gate, right? And it's yep. a reality. Yep. It's a large organization. And uh, as much as we try, not everything is perfect for everyone all the time, right? And so these three programs in particular, along with EAP and, and uh, 
chips and, and others. ADR. Uh, ADR. Yeah, it's, it's meant to give uh, our employees resources. And, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is absolutely no room for reprisal in this organization. So whether it's people going to help ag agencies, um, expressing their concerns through a, a DOX survey or, or filing a complaint, awesome. We as the leadership team just want to know where the challenges are so we can get out and close any caps, gaps in our culture at the end of the day uh, so that every employee here is achieving their full potential. Because when they do, the organization becomes the best version of itself. And uh, national defense win. It wins, really. That's the end of the. Absolutely. That's the bottom line. Critically, yeah. critically important. That's why right. we all raise our right hand. Right. And Mr. Laughlin, where do you see the, the future of the workforce here? I know we've, we've got new missions coming in. Uh, how much impact will that be? Uh, well, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, to be that definitive in nature is to say, hey, here's how many jobs are going to be created in the next five years, or here's how many, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But I can tell you, I feel it's incumbent on, on me as the continuity leader in the organization to have that as one of my uh, paramount duties is to look for the strategic vision and the longevity of the organization mm -hmm. uh, of what we can do. So uh, I think that there is a, a, a great opportunity that is facing us. Um, that is out there from a multitude of different from viewpoints. Um, and so having said that, we have such a great relationship with the local community. We have such a great relationship with uh, everybody on base to do that. And we have such a great location where we're at. Mm -hmm. We're going to have the ability <clears throat> to be able to grow expand where we need to expand and i think there are workloads that are going to be coming to tinker uh in the next few years that is going to allow us a great opportunity to expand our workforce uh, but having said that at the same time i think there's some workloads that we're going to divest ourselves of um, as well too so you have to keep that in mind uh as well when when, when you're going and doing that i mean you got to consider we're flying 50-year-old aircraft out there. I mean, you know, how much longer do we need to keep flying those and the engines associated with those? But we need to invest properly in our uh, infrastructure. We need to invest in our uh, um, IT uh, function, functional capability. And obviously, the uh, critical piece of it is our technology. Right. Technology is the key to the future, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. And how do we press forward with being able to do that? And I think that's that's something that we are putting a focus on. We have a uh, area development plan um, that is helping. We have a technology plan that are, um, I guess if you would, those are replacing the, the old terms of a strategic plan of how we're putting those into place and looking forward to the future right. of the workloads that we know and that we want to build it to come. Um, to be able to do. But with what we currently have, I see a great opportunity with working with our uh, propulsion enterprise uh, mm -hmm. of, of, of workload that could come here. And I see new workloads uh, that the Air Force is going to be bringing on in the, in the future that we are positioned for and that we need to continue to position ourselves for. So I see the future is bright for Oklahoma City. Uh, and I see uh, uh, us becoming a much differing um, workplace in the future of, yeah. of how we have been to how we're going to be in the future. That's good. Yeah. Well, and I, I'd say, you know, 
in this business, you'll, n- you'll never get away from bending metal, right? I mean, <laughs> we, we've got to yeah. do that. You know, we, you know, uh, riveting things are, are, will always be required. Um, but you know, I'll add on in addition to technology and facilities and infrastructure is how we develop our people. Right. And, and a little a more point. specifically, one thing we do know that's coming here is the B-21. Uh-huh. We, we don't know exactly when, or and we haven't completely defined the workload, but we do know that we're gonna have to grow in terms of composites and materials. So we're gonna have to train that workforce. So we're gonna mm-hmm. have to work with our career techs. We're gonna have to work with our universities uh, to bring that on. But as he alluded, the Air Force has made the decision to um, retire uh, some legacy aircraft that maybe n- are not entirely survivable in a high-end fight um, in the Pacific or Europe. And, and so we're going out to uh, get those aircraft and missiles and engines and things we need. Yeah. Um, now, as Congress permits and we retire, that organic workload will go away. So we need to think in new ways about how we're, what we're doing here. We know our back shops are a national resource. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of capacity there. We're working hard to expand our organic manufacturing capabilities from growing our foundry to bringing in 3D polymer uh, sand and metal printers um, to just getting after core basic manufacturing and not just maintenance, repair, and overhaul and modification. So we're growing in that area to make sure we can continue to bring that workload in. And frankly, we haven't talked about software yet. Um, Software uh, in the sustainment center um, is grown between 5 and 10% a year each year. Lines of code over the last couple of decades have gone from like 15,000 on a C-130 to now 150 million on the 135 or on the the, uh, F-35 or whatever. So uh, the point is that we we have a growing need for software engineers. Um, We will always have a need for technicians and that that they may change some of the skills we need, but some of the critical skills we know we always have is in non-destructive inspection, uh, Metcal metrology Mm -hmm. and calibration, and, and some others, and, and of course, engine mechs um, are, are key to us as well. So, right, and good to know that you know. I mean, it it could be easy enough to just sit back on our laurels here and and say, hey, you know, we're planting our foot firmly in the sand. We've got this workload, and the workload is going to be around when I retire. So, why would I bother trying so hard to to keep moving forward and reinvent ourselves for for future work that we know we're going to have to deal with? You don't want to get caught slipping. (laughs) That's right. I I can assure you that is not the mentality of this organization. And that's good. We're striving every day to shoot in front of the duck. And we look at Mm -hmm. an industry and we see certain commercial partners um, are are not just using additive manufacturing or 3D printing for repairs, but they're actually using it to print new parts. Absolutely. Fuel oil coolers, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, engine parts, things like that. So if we don't learn to manufacture and repair them the way that, that industry is doing, then, well, you've heard this example before, every original manufacturer of the steam train engine mm. went out of business when the locomotive came on board because they refused to embrace change. So we are out looking at those new technologies. We're collaborating at trade shows, collaborating with our universities to accelerate that tech, and then a, a other um, uh, Department of Defense agencies. Awesome. So we're, we're moving fast. We're in good hands. And, sir, I think we'll, we'll wrap this up with we, we talk about how much civilian population is here at the complex. But, you know, what about service, uniform people that are either coming out after one or two tours or coming out of retirement and don't want to leave Oklahoma City? Are there opportunities for them to come to work here? Yeah, for sure. And beyond just the ones that are currently stationed here uh, that may want to stay, there's opportunities for more to come in, right? Um, so, uh, 
we've, we're just about 10,500 people, give or take 100 from month to month. Um, less than 100 are uniformed here. Wow. Now, when you look at our <laughs> civilian population, only about 4% have any prior military experience, right? Wow. And, <clears throat> and that's okay. No, one, no one's saying there's a, a quota or a number of goodness. But we do know, like, if, if we need NDI professionals, if we need AFMETCAL or METCAL professionals, um, that there's folks that have been doing that and not only doing it, but it, getting promoted in rank and leading in those areas uh, for sometimes a couple, maybe three decades. And rather than, than have them go out to industry, we'd rather them come here. So a couple of things have uh, come into play. Um, one is the 180-day cooling off period for people retiring, seeking jobs in the grade of GS-13 and below. Right. Um, that, is, that has been set aside uh, for now, which is good. good. So it allows for the, the hiring of folks. Um, and, and then there's a couple other things that make Oklahoma just a great place to be. Um, military retirement is not taxed by the state of Oklahoma. They just passed that about nine months ago. Awesome. Uh, they're doing to, to make it favorable, right, to try and bring in the right folks. And for military members, you know, I think I'm coming up on my 14th move in 30 years. We don't have an anchor <laughs> point. So for military members retiring, if they don't re want to retire to their home state of record or that of their, their, their spouse or partner, um, and they want to, go, to get roots, wow, what a great place. Cost of living, community support, yeah. um, financially speaking, and there is so much aerospace work here. And if they're going to come up in Oklahoma to do aerospace work, we'd rather them stay within the Department of Defense and contribute to the mission and uh, learn from our civilian workforce and maybe bring in a couple of tricks of, tricks of the trade from the uniform side as well. It's a, it's, a, it's a matter of ironing, sharpening iron, right? Yes, sir. And, sir, I think with that, that's a great place to, to wrap up. And, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and, and coming out to talk about important topics, but the people, the, the point of execution of what we do here. Um, and so with that, that will bring to close another episode of the Tinker Talks podcast. Uh, as we had stated earlier in the podcast, we will put links to our website and specifically the jobs website, which we created um, which really gives people a, a good handle on how to break down the DHA process and how to get hired out here in a multitude of ways that are not USA jobs. Um, there is USA jobs, of course, but there are other ways to come to work out here in, in better, more seamless ways. So uh, we'll make sure to have that link. Um, also, make sure to check us out on the social media sites. The, the Facebook page and Instagram is at Tinker Air Force Base. Our Twitter page is at Team underscore Tinker. And, of course, check us out on LinkedIn. Uh, there's two Tinker Air Force bases, so make sure you don't find the one that's a, a small, uh, some sort of small machinery shop or somewhere in here in Oklahoma. There's, <laughs> there is another Tinker Air Force Base LinkedIn page that is actually ours, and uh, you will find um, every time we have an Oklahoma City Air Logistics Complex job hiring post, it goes up there on LinkedIn as well. So until next time, uh, stay safe out there. Treat each other with respect and kindness, and we'll see you again soon.